If you're from the great state of Idaho, you might have heard this. It's not just saving our tradition of horse racing. Proposition 1 is about Idaho. Job creation, classroom funding, real accountability, and the Idaho and sponsoring Prop 1 are donating 100% of net profits from their horse racing operations to a new charitable foundation. I worked with and owned horses all my life. Supporters of Prop 1 are running deceptive ads. Prop 1 is an unlimited expansion of gambling statewide. I know the people behind Prop 1, and they've made a lot of promises to schools and the racing community, but they take 18 times more money than schools get. All right, Hannah. Yes. Pop quiz hotshot. Okay. Yes or no on Prop 1? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what Prop 1 is, and I need more information if I'm going to say who yes benefits? No. Who benefits in Prop 1? Schools. Right? Schools get money? 4-H. I cannot explain to you what Prop 1 is. I'm Nick Capodice. And I'm Hannah McCarthy. This is Civics 101, the podcast refresher course on the basics of how our whole democracy works. So today we're going to be talking about propositions, ballot measures. These are initiatives, referendums, and recall. So when you say propositions... What are you talking about? Uh, propositions is an umbrella term under which initiative, referendum, and recall fall. To be clear, today we're not talking about legislatively referred constitutional amendments, whoo, which all the states except for Delaware have. Hold on. What is up with Delaware? I don't know, actually. We're going to have to put that in our state anomaly episode along with Nebraska's single house legislature. And our 400-seat house of representatives. Yeah. Did I sound a little drunk when I said that? No, it sounded perfect. First off, ballot initiatives, they only happen in 24 states. And when I told our midterm guru, Dan Casino from Fairleigh Dickinson University, that I thought it was funny that New Hampshire didn't have initiatives, he said that. Uh, No, it's it's about when your state constitution was written. If your state constitution was written between about 1880 and 1915, you're going to have initiative, referendum, recall, all that. Uh, If it wasn't written or it wasn't revised during that period, you're not going to have it. This was during the height of the progressive era, when progressives were arguing that corporations, monopolies, and trust were corrupting state legislators, and there was no way for the citizen's voice to be heard. Ballot initiative gives them that voice. So many of you out there, you're not going to see props on your ballot on Election Day. So for you, this episode is going to make you wish you had them or grateful that you don't. If you are from one of those 24 states, chances are they are a massive part of your political landscape. But first, we need to dissect what an initiative and a referendum are. Here's former California Assembly member and teacher Cheryl Cook Callio. The initiative and referendum process puts uh, the ability for, uh, for citizens to either initiate, the word initiate, a statute that can be passed, that either becomes a bill or it might become an amendment to a state constitution, which gives uh, grassroots organizers a real advantage. So an initiative is new legislation initiated by the people. Yes, and referendum is... Something that the legislature submits to the people in order for them to validate a, a law that they would like to have passed. Oftentimes it is something that's controversial, or it may be like a state constitution Or a referendum could be a grassroots movement by citizens of a particular state or county or city to recall or to redo a bill 
that they don't want that was passed by their a lawmaking body. So a referendum is either reworking or removing a bill that's already been passed by Congress. Yeah. So this gave a lot of power to individual citizens as opposed to leaving it up to um, your representatives. And legislative referendum is when elected officials put the question to the people. What do you think? Should we pass this bill? Why on earth would Congress want the people's opinion instead of just working it out themselves? Well, as we've learned in many episodes, it's really hard to get bills through both houses of Congress. So if you're a legislator and there's a bill that you think doesn't have a chance of getting out of committee or going through debate on the floor of the House or the Senate, you can just throw it to the people for a vote. And it becomes law. So, yeah, this is uh, Tim Iman, and I'm part of a team that has done initiatives in Washington State for the last 20 years. And during that time, we've managed to get 16 ballot measures on the ballot uh, during that period of time. And uh, voters have approved 10 of those and, and rejected six. So we're, uh, we're batting over 500. Tim is a conservative. And part of what appeals to him about this process is that it gives him a voice in a state that tends to lean pretty blue. Well, the initiative process is allowing the people to decide. And I think that that's always been attractive uh, to me because, frankly, I just don't trust politicians to do the right thing. But uh, the initiatives we focused on are really focused on limiting government's power, especially when it comes to taxes. Okay, that's initiative and referendum. But what is recall? Ooh, recall is super interesting and super duper rare, but I wanted to include it today. Here's another initiative expert. Guy Marzarati, political correspondent from our friends at KQED in San Francisco. Recalls are of actual politicians and elected officials. We had one a little more than a decade ago in the governor's office where the sitting governor was recalled by voters. Um, and so that, again, was a uh, required a signature drive uh, that was then placed on the ballot and the governor was recalled and a new governor uh, was chosen in the same election. Oh. The, the people just removed a governor? They did. Gray Davis was removed from office in 2003, mostly due to tax and budget issues. But this was the election when Arnold Schwarzenegger was sworn in as governor. For the people to win, politics as usual must lose. No impeachment process. No, no trial in the Senate. Just the voice of the people? Yes, though I should add, only 19 U.S. states have recall. And there's only been three in U.S. history, two of which were successful. Okay, so that's recall. How about initiatives and referendums? How did they start? Who can put one on the ballot? It can be anyone. And, you know, you there's a process by which you submit uh, the language to the state. Um, and then after that language is reviewed, you are allowed to start gathering signatures. So here's Tim Iman again. This is the guy who's gotten 20 initiatives on the ballot in Washington state. Well, it's, it's really tough. Uh, you've got to somehow convince uh, well over 300,000 fellow citizens to sign a piece of paper uh, to put that idea on the ballot. And you have to do that in about three or four months. So it's an incredibly difficult process uh, to be able to, you know, essentially start the entire campaign and, and get it up and running and successful uh, in such a short period of time. Just a quick check in, Hannah. How are you feeling about initiatives so far? In the sense that we are a democracy for the people, by the people, it sounds really great, right? Well, let's start by looking at those signatures. 
Hi, my name is Kathy from Petitions Unlimited, and we're here today in this very, very rough economy, and I got the job for you. In California, we often job. see outside of supermarkets and, uh, you know, places where a lot of people gather, you'll see folks with clipboards uh, with different initiatives that they are gathering signatures for. Make your own hours. This is great for a musician, for an actor, somebody that just wants to make money on the side. This is a Many of those people who do that are paid to do it, um, and it can be a lucrative business if, say, an initiative is running against the clock to qualify for a ballot. Maybe its proponents will pay a hefty fee uh, for each you know, signature that's gathered in order to make sure that the initiative uh, proposal does get on the ballot. Hold on, it's not just you know, passionate advocates getting signatures? No, no, this is business. Big business. Enough valid signatures from registered voters and the measures make it to the November ballot. If you have the 13 or 12 petitions and you get one person to sign them all, it's worth about $40. So it's worth a lot of money. Some campaigns are paying as much as $5 this year for a single signature. Eileen Ray runs a petition. It's the person collecting signatures who gets the $5 per signature? Yeah, so they can make upwards of $500 a day. So there's no incentive for that person with a clipboard to tell you the truth about what you're signing. So if you're not doing your due diligence, if you're not reading the initiative, you know, yourself. And they have a whole bag of tricks. They can walk up and they say, well, you like puppies, don't you? And, you know, this protects the puppies. And, you, oh, yes, I'm going to sign this because it protects the puppies, only to find out that it kills kittens. Their job is really just to get the signatures and get paid for it. As of October 17th, 2018, Ballotpedia has tracked about $1.4 billion, with a B, dollars spent on contributions and expenditures towards ballot measures for these upcoming midterms. This is starting to dampen my enthusiasm for a citizen-led democracy. Well, let me just throw another wet log on the fire, <laughs> Hannah. Sometimes parties and corporations throw tons of money behind initiatives for other reasons. Ballot initiatives sometimes are often just used to get people out to the polls. I mean, we saw an example of that this year in California um, with the gas tax repeal. This was a measure placed on the ballot with heavy funding from the state Republican Party. They spent a lot to get the signatures and get it qualified for the ballot, but then stopped spending as much once the measure actually qualified. And the reason was they really wanted this gas tax repeal on the ballot to get Republicans to the polls. They thought it would be a big driver of turnout um, that would help them in the governor's race and even more importantly, help them in really close congressional races. But as an actual measure, they didn't really fund it once it was on the ballot to the same extent, which made it seem like maybe it was more important to get it on there than to actually get it passed. So imagine for a second that we as a nation had initiative and referendum and that the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade was up to the people to decide. Can you imagine the voter turnout for that election? I think it would be huge, right? I mean... That's one of the most divisive issues in the country. If that were up to us for a vote, I think most able voters would turn out. But it, how would you even write that on a ballot? I'm very glad you asked because this brings me to another point. Since you're voting for ideas as opposed to just candidates' names on a ballot, there is a lot of attention on how these are phrased. 
Back in 2008, Cheryl Cocalio, she was teaching a high school class. She called the most inclusive class she had seen. They had a, a gay-straight alliance before other schools had them. The kids were very open about who they were. And this was when California was voting on Prop 8, which was about same-sex marriage. We have an I-vote thing in California where students mimic the national election, and they all voted against gay marriage. And I, my mouth flew open, as did my entire We the People class. Um, and I immediately went to the ballot and looked at how it was worded. And I said, well, they were all vote- thought they were voting in favor of gay marriage. So how something is worded is extremely important. And there are lawyers that spend their entire career figuring out how to word something so that it seems like one thing is, is opposed to another. The wording is such a politicized aspect uh, of this whole ballot initiative conversation. So the wording is decided by the attorney general's office. And this, you know, can work very drastically for and against supporters of a ballot measure. Take this year with the gas tax repeal. Democrats control all statewide office uh, in California, which includes the attorney general's office. So what voters will see on their ballot does not say, do you want to vote yes on a gas tax repeal. Instead, the measure and the language that they'll see seems really tilted towards, do you want to get rid of funding that has been dedicated to fix our roads, to fund transportation, which is what this increased gas tax uh, went towards. So polling, interestingly, that has just asked people about their thoughts on the ballot measure by reading them the ballot language Uh, you know, the repeal has done a lot worse than if you ask people whether they support a repeal of the gas tax. Well, what language actually made it onto the ballot? Right. Here's the first part for the Prop 6 summary. Repeals a 2017 transportation laws, tax and fee provisions that pay for repairs and improvements to local roads, state highways and public transportation. So Ballotpedia has this automatic formula that analyzes the readability of all of these measures. And it's called the flesh Kincaid grade level, which is how many years of formal education you'd have to have in order to fully understand with confidence a ballot measure. So this one we just read, that scores a 16. What does 16 mean? That means you need 16 years of formal education to comprehend it. You need a college degree. And the one we played some ads for in the beginning, our old horsey friend, Prop 1 in Idaho. I worked with and owned horses all my life. 53 years of formal education to understand it. Who besides a monk has 53 years of formal education? It's just, it's just a formula that analyzes language. But let me, but tell me how you'd vote on this. Ready? Yeah. An initiative amending Chapter 25, Title 54, Idaho Code, contains findings and purposes, amends definition of historical horse race, adds new section authorizing historical horse race betting at certain locations where live or simulcast paramutual horse race betting occurs, specifies requirements for historical horse race terminals, declares such terminals not to be slot machines, allocates revenue from historical horse race betting, requires licensees to enter into agreements with horsemen's groups, creates historical horse race purse monies fund in state treasury, authorizes distribution by state racing commission and investment by state treasurer fund monies, directs state racing commission to promulgate, implement rules, declares an act effective upon voter approval and completion of voting canvas, and provides for severability. Get out. <laughs> Leave. My favorite words in this are para- so a lot of Paramutual? these spare spell check was like, don't you mean something else? Like three words in this, this my spell check didn't catch. What's the single thing I'm voting on? Like, what's the big idea here? Because these are a million little things that don't mean a hell of a lot to me because I know nothing about horse racing. Yeah, this is the sort of stuff that requires you to do the legwork. 
you have to research each initiative before you vote. From what I can gather, Prop 1 is about legalizing the use of video terminals for horse race betting. I would not have gotten that. And there's 11 of these in California alone. So if there's a call to action today, it's to go to a website like Ballotpedia.org, put in your address, and get a sample ballot before Election Day. Or let's say you're in the polling booth. Get out your phone. Look this stuff up if you need to. So let's hear Guy's final thoughts on the pros and cons of direct democracy. Supporters of ballot initiatives say this is the best way to give citizens power to react to things that the legislature isn't dealing with. Um, Examples of that in the past have been about property taxes and this year rent control, issues that the legislature hasn't taken up for years. People are fed up and they feel like, okay, you didn't act on this, now it's time for us to act on it. On the flip side, when we talk about citizens' initiatives, these often aren't brought to the ballot by, you know, some good citizen who suddenly thinks of an idea that should be a law. It's oftentimes interest groups, unions, corporations that feel like, you know, they want to change a law. They couldn't do it through the legislature. They don't want to negotiate about it. They want to just port forward kind of a yes or no idea, and they're willing to spend heavily to make it happen. That's you know, how this, the, uh, this process, I guess, has taken on more of a cynical um, aspect. And if it seems that people are a bit cynical of initiatives, I want to close by saying that, yes, corporations and political parties have massive influence on what initiatives make it to the ballot. That said, these are also the issues that elected officials have been avoiding that they wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. Issues like marijuana legalization, abortion, same-sex marriage, the death penalty. So knowing that the language might be designed to purposefully obfuscate the meaning, I feel empowered to do research and also to take with a grain of salt what I'm reading in that voting booth. It's a little bit like those crosswords you do, Nick, where (laughs) the clue contains the answer but it's not immediately apparent. You have to think outside the box to get to it. The, uh, the cryptic crossword. Yeah. And I, I think it's, they're really exciting. They just put out a lot of, uh, there's a lot of trust in the voter in these issues. Mm-hmm. If, if the voters all do their work, yeah. then these can be a really cool thing. If they don't, they are at the whims of people who have lots of money. Right. And so you're going to move to California? No. Okay. I like the rain. <laughs> Before we go, we have our final snapshot of a famous midterm from U.S. history delivered by former NHPR reporter, current afternoon host at Wisconsin Public Radio, author of Dead Presidents, Mr. Perfect, Brady Carlson. What midterm are we talking about today, Brady? We're talking about the midterm of 2002. And the lesson from this midterm is that the rules of American politics only apply until they don't. know that what typically happens in midterms is that the president's party loses seats in Congress in the midterm after the president is first elected. They don't always vote for the opposition party to have control of Congress, but at the very least, the president's party ends up with fewer seats in Congress after that midterm. That said, the political picture in 2002 was complicated. 
we were only a couple years removed from the presidential election of 2000. That's the one where Republican George W. Bush won the Electoral College but lost the popular vote, and there was the highly controversial Supreme Court decision about recounts in the state of Florida. Neither the sanctity of the ballots nor the integrity of the election has been compromised, and that the election results... Republicans had a majority in the House of Representatives. It was a straightforward majority. The Senate was anything but straightforward. The 2000 elections had left the chamber with 50 Republican senators and 50 Democratic and Democratic-aligned senators. So the vice president was on the hook to potentially break all these ties. And then after five months of that split, a Republican senator switched parties and the Democrats had a very narrow majority. I have found myself increasingly at odds with the Republican philosophy and more in line with the philosophy of the Democratic Party. So leading up to this midterm, we had one chamber of Congress with a Republican majority, one with a Democratic majority, a president who had only nearly won an election. So this is about as divided as divided government gets, which in and of itself is very complicated. But of course, the most complicated piece of the midterm in 2002 was that it came about a year after the attacks of September 11, 2001. I became something that no president should ever want to be, a wartime president. There were other issues at the time. There had been a big tax cut bill in Congress. There was the No Child Left Behind education law. The U.S. economy had kind of become sluggish. But the single big issue in this midterm was security. The U.S. was already launching a military effort in Afghanistan. President Bush had called for Congress to authorize a new military campaign in Iraq. And I had forgotten until I looked it up just how close to the election the Iraq war vote took place. It was in October 2002, so it was under a month before Election Day. Republicans in Congress, by and large, backed the president and said, we need to go into Iraq. The Democrats, who had mostly opposed the president on the economy and other domestic issues, ended up split on the Iraq vote. A lot of rank-and-file Democrats opposed the war vote, but their leaders in the House and Senate, as well as some very high-profile senators like Hillary Clinton and John Kerry, voted in favor of the resolution. Any vote that might lead to war should be hard but I cast it with conviction. Now, obviously that became a very consequential vote for a lot of reasons. A lot of people changed their minds about that vote in the years to come. But if you look at it purely through the lens of a midterm election campaign, you have a lot of high-profile Democrats who are basically siding with the Republican administration on the top issue of the campaign. And all of that ends up leading to a midterm outcome which is far from the usual. There's an important caveat about that rule that the president's party loses seats in the president's first midterm. And that is that you can usually track how big those losses are gonna be for the president's party based on the president's approval rating at the time. So take George W. Bush's predecessor, Bill Clinton. In his first midterm election, his approval rating was like 43%, and so Democrats lost pretty big. They lost control of Congress. In 2002, George W. Bush's approval rating was 63%. We choose freedom and the dignity of every life. It 
wasn't that long before it was even higher in the immediate aftermath of the September 11th attacks. So you have a president with relatively high approval ratings, long-term changes in the country's political alignment, and an election where security and terrorism are top issues in a way that they usually aren't. And it wasn't that all of that ended up turning into a landslide for Republicans in 2002. It was still pretty divided if you look at the raw vote totals. But the races that might have swung one way or another and determined the outcome wound up swinging in the administration's favor. So in the end, Republicans gained five seats in the House. They gained two in the Senate. So they wound up having majorities in both chambers of Congress again. This is the first time that the president's party had gained seats in the president's first midterm election since the 1930s. He told me to come down here and tell y'all something. He told me to come down here and tell you that two years from now, he wants all of y'all on his team. The lesson here is that there are no guarantees in U.S. elections. There are trends, and some of them happen so often that they might almost feel like political laws. But to assume that voters will go a certain way in an election just because voters have usually gone that certain way in the past is to forget the wisdom of one of our great philosophers, baseball star Yogi Berra, who said, it ain't over till it's over. That'll do for this, our penultimate episode on the midterms. Stay tuned for the next and final one. Today's episode is produced by me, Nick Capodice, and Hannah McCarthy. Our staff includes Jackie Helbert and Ben Henry. Our executive producer is Erica Janik. Maureen McMurray believes in paramutual promulgation. Music from today's episode is from geographer Scott Gratton, Chris Zabriskie, Poddington Bear, and Blue Dot Sessions. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio.